Welcome to the Inclusive Education Project. I'm Vicki Brett. I'm Amanda Salohi. We're two civil rights lawyers on a mission to change the conversation about education, civil rights, and modern activism. Each week, we're going to explore new topics which are going to educate and empower others and give them a platform to enact change in education and level the playing field. And we're back. Hello. Spring has sprung. It's like, well, okay. I apologize for all of you who are not in California. We are experiencing 75, 80 degree day. It is April. It's supposed to get cold again, apparently. So don't even put that out in the universe. That's what the weather said. I'm not. That's what the weather men (laughs) say. I didn't say that. I mean, it's still kind of chilly in the morning. Well, I should for sure say that too much because I know in other places it's like 25 degrees in the some in the morning. So well, it's spring. we're not experiencing that. April showers bring May flowers. I don't know what's happening everywhere else, but if it's raining, at least May will be nice. So that'll be good. <laughs> that would be nice. Yeah, It'd be nice for some more flowers. We're getting so much green. We have that super bloom here in California that people are going yeah. Insta- Instagram crazy. Well, yeah, about. that's the only reason why <laughs> <laughs> they just want the for the gram. But it's been a minute. Obviously, there's a lot that's constantly happening for us. You know, we saw that we had posted about it on our Facebook group that Betsy DeVos had come out with her budget. And this was the third year. I don't know why it got picked up this last year. But for the last three years, the Trump administration has proposed to cut funding to the Special Olympics with the thought process that majority of the Special Olympic budget anyway is coming from philanthropy, people that are giving donations. And about 12% was coming from the federal government. And so then we shouldn't even give that 12%. Which it's like philanthropy, nonprofit organizations already pick up the slack that the government doesn't put out there to put more of a burden on philanthropy. Like, I don't remember getting a check from Trump. Do you? But like, what do you mean? Like, like they're not supporting us. Oh, well, yeah. I mean, the special events have been around. For, <laughs> like, no, I know that. <laughs> but I'm just saying, like, like, his administration is not supporting organizations that fight for things that where nonprofits are filling in gaps. And to basically be like, oh, philanthropists will take care of it. There's not. There's already so much that we're dealing with. Like, unless you're going to. So I guess their thought process is like, look, we only give 10% of their funding through federal grants and the rest is made up with like donations. So it's like with the donations making up the rest of the total, 148.7 million. So if you're just looking at numbers and you're thinking, oh, well, 10%, like, you know, blah, blah, blah. But it's like, really, what is that 10%? Where is it going to go? To the border? Like, let's be real. Like, that's like, why are we taking money away from something that over the years has tried to change like the cultural perception of, you know, people with disabilities, right? We always talk about like, what about the abilities? Well, there's already not enough people who even are aware about what the Special Olympics does as it is. Like, so maybe you should be doing the opposite. We should be investing more money. Yeah, they would quote unquote save 17.6 million and literally like where is that going to go is it going to go to education no is it going to go to changing the perception of in the united states of people with you know physical disabilities or mental no so you know obviously well it's a drop in the bucket considering how much money is like for what 
the agenda that Trump has and the amount of money he wants to spend on, for example, like the wall and everything, the amount of money all this stuff costs, like the amount of money you're going to save from cutting Special Olympic funding is a drop in the bucket. It's really it's not going to go anywhere. So we're going to yet again take away something from a disadvantaged population and tell them that they don't matter, basically. Like, I don't care that it's only 10% of the budget and like, okay, maybe it's true that philanthropists are going to take it up because most philanthropists actually care about human rights issues. But like, why are you like, we are a nation of people who are supposed to be open and caring about other people and caring about freedoms, no matter who you are. And we're going to now tell this population that you're not as important because we only give you 10%. And like, so that's something that like is easy to take away. But it's not just about the dollar amount. It's about what that says. Yeah, I think one of the senators had like asked DeVos, like, do you know, it was uh, Representative Mark Pocan had asked him like, oh, do you know how many like kids that's going to affect and she was just like, no. And he knew he was like 272,000. And it is like, something like, um, don't you think you should know that before you propose cutting I mean, it's budget? just like for whatever reason, it got traction. And so like, you know, all of a sudden it's like I was listening to something and they were talking about like what propaganda is. Right. And so it's just like a systematic kind of message that can bring instability and chaos, right? So that's what Trump does by telling DeVos, yeah, do this, cut this, blah, blah, blah. And granted, it didn't pass the last two years, so what was the chance that it was going to pass this year? But then he, it was a like a media op, right? Where he came in, he was just like, no, let's not cut well, it. And like, let's huge, take it off. Right. Like, yeah, backlash. There was a huge outcry right. about people because it got like in the media. But I think it's so funny for people who think, well, Trump well, he saved came, the day. Yeah, yeah. He and it was like his own people did this. And so he we, also appointed her. Right. So everything she does is her fault. His fault. Well, it just goes to the propaganda. Right. Because then he could come in and save the day and say like, oh, blah, blah, blah. And like oh, a media stunt. Right. Right. And that's like what he's like how like, celebrities go through like drama with their significant other or, or they. Yeah. Like scandals. And mm-hmm. it's like. Any publicity is good publicity. Right, right. Keeping it in the, yeah. So, I mean, anyway, good for everybody. We did a call of action on our Facebook group to call your center. And we were going to show when we did it. And then it was like we did it. And then we were going to record later in the day. And then all of a sudden he came and like was like, oh, blah, blah, blah. And we were like, oh, okay, well, good job, everyone. (laughs) Like it was just we've gotten really used to calling our representatives. Um, But I think that that does show something like, you know, we learned this with the healthcare, and like we called our senators with that and how a lot of people may think that most of Congress is not in touch with their constituents. And that may be true for many, but there are a lot that it does make a difference. So like when the healthcare, you know, scandal was happening and there were so many people who called their representatives that it did make an impact. So I guess the lesson we can learn from this is like, don't stop calling. Don't stop putting it on your Facebook and making an outcry. Now, of course, putting it on your Facebook is very different than calling your senator. I think calling your senator is going to do a lot more good. But you can see how in it was like one day, in one day of public outcry, Trump had to backtrack. So even if it is a stunt, whatever, we got him to, we you know, somebody got him, everyone got him. He did change his mind. Whether his mind is already made up, we know that grassroots efforts and big outcries do make a difference so you know don't ever think that 
you can't make a difference because you're just one person. You can spread wildfire. That's an idea. What's happened this whole time? Yeah. <laughs> so we'll just keep it on. Hopefully, what we talked about today kind of gives you a bit more information as to what you're doing within IEPs. I think first up, we're going to be talking about parental participation. Parental participation and how important it is that you are a member of that team. And you what are just does as that qualified, mean? yeah, as anybody on that team. And I think that this will resonate with a lot of parents and hopefully shed some light for those that are on the other side, the administrators and the teachers and stuff to really know, you know, what is, what are the implications of the parent? Like how, right? you know, how much when they say equal participant, like what does that mean? Like some people downplay it and it's just like, no, they right. have just as much Well, because you say. think there's so much focus on the child's rights, but you as a parent have rights as well. And it's substantial rights. It's not just procedural. Right. And I think that for a lot of IEP teams, they think it's a democracy and it's not. It's really weird. Like sometimes you'll be in an IEP and they'll be like, well, how many people think that this child needs speech and language? And it's like, well, no, if the speech and language pathologist is saying that the child needs a certain amount of speech and language, it's, you know, as much as everything is an IEP team meeting choice. But I think what happens to a lot of parents that kind of destabilizes them is that it just very much seems that there is a pre-meeting where everything is decided and then they come in and it's like one against 10 and we understand that's how you feel. And that's why we try to lean towards there being a conversation and really trying to not make it as adversarial because, you know, you get more flies with honey. And I think that a lot of those parents that even if they didn't mean to kind of shake things up, did and then they're getting you know retaliated against and it's hard so that's why we wanted to talk about like your perspective yeah because i mean how do. many times have you been into an iep where you don't even start talking about something and the program specialist goes so the team is offering this right. and it's like what do you mean the team is offering this we haven't talked about it at all i'm part of the team right. the parents part of the team anyone that they bring is part of the team Next week, we're going to talk about what makes up an IEP team, and we'll go into detail about like each person and their role. So that's kind of set that aside. But in terms of like you are an equal participant, you have just as much say as the teacher, as the program specialist, as everyone, you know. So starting from the IDEA, looking at your rights under the IDEA. So the statute says that each public agency must take steps to ensure that one or both of the parents of a child with a disability are present at each IEP team meeting or are afforded the opportunity to participate, which includes, and then, you know, it goes through the notifications of meeting early enough to ensure that they have an opportunity to attend, scheduling the meeting at a mutually agreeable time and place. And then it goes on to talk about information provided to parents. So it says, they're required to indicate the purpose, time, location of the meeting and inform parents, you know, of their rights. That's all very... Yeah, I can't like, tell you how many times parents come and they go, they only give me one date every time. And I'm like, no, like if you need to have different dates and different times because of your work, like you should be able to have that. And we get it. There's a lot of IEP meetings that happen, especially this time of year. But with a little bit of coordination, you shouldn't be ostracized to the point where like you're going to have to have it the last day of school. Like they need to be able to pick mutually agreeable time and place so don't let them make you feel guilty because you they have to do it it has to be mutually agreeable time and place and so i know a lot of you guys are probably like but 
you know, and like we say, put everything in writing. You know, if they're going to impede your opportunity to participate, a judge needs to see that it's, you know, you weren't being like, I only have this one day. Like, because what will happen is a school district will offer you one day and you'll say that doesn't work. And then they'll offer you one more date and they'll say that doesn't work. And they'll offer a third day that doesn't work. Well, these three dates were all at three o'clock. And you say, I cannot do three o'clock because I don't have childcare. Right, so it needs to be before three o'clock. And we have schools that will refuse to do it during the school day because they don't want to do subs. And I have other schools that refuse to do it after school because they don't want to pay overtime. That's not allowed. They can't have a blanket statement like that. It has to be that mutual. So like if you don't have childcare and your child gets out of school at 2.30 and they try to have the IEP every time at three, you're allowed to say, I cannot do IEP meetings at three. You have to do it earlier in the day. Vice versa with like if, you know, work constraints like you can't work do it on thursdays and they always give you thursdays but the thing is is that even though they're required to do a mutually agreeable you still have to notify them they can't read your mind or like you may have said something to a teacher in the past like they're not going to document that so it's really important that when they give you an invite if it doesn't work you say look this doesn't work because of this here are the like you know days or times that work best and i had clients that were teachers once and it was just like we cannot do it before, you know, two ten, and they always are giving them like early morning things, and it was just like we can't do that. And it wasn't until I came in, I wrote a letter, and it was like easy, and it was just like that's sad, but at a certain extent too, because they hadn't put it in writing, it changes things, right? So you want to be sure to do that. I just wanted to make note. I know we've talked about that in the past, but it's a good reminder. It's been a while since we uh, talked yeah. about that. Yeah. So the statute talks about making sure that parents are part of the team, making sure that parents are given the opportunity to participate. Kesa goes a step further to say that the school districts are required to give parents meaningful parental participation and that they are prohibited from impeding this meaningful parental participation. So there's a number of ways. So a lot of times we get this question. Well, I asked for the assessments five days in advance. Aren't they supposed to give it to us five days in advance? My answer to you is it depends. There may be other states that have some specific requirement. So I'm not talking about state law. In California, for example, like we have like timelines, you know, you have to hold that IEP within 30 days and all of that. Other states don't have those same timelines. So there might be states out there that say, you know, they have to give you documents three days in advance. I'm not sure. In California law and under the IDEA, there's no such like statute specifically saying the school district is required to give it to you X amount of days in advance. However, if you are a parent and you're heading into a triennial IEP and your child has speech, OT, PT, SAI, all of this, and you have like six different assessments and you have a three hour meeting, you know that if you get those assessments at the moment the IEP starts, the only thing you're going to be able to do that entire meeting is kind of skim through the documents as they're being read. You know that in that three hours, there's no way that you're going to get to the actual IEP development. However, if you're given those documents ahead of time and you're able to review them, the poor purpose of the meeting can then be, let's review any questions the parents have, talk about recommendations, and go into the IEP development. Then you're not having two separate IEPs, a part one and a part two, or sometimes part three or part four, right? So those documents given to you ahead of time allows you to meaningfully participate in a conversation about your child's needs and about the assessments because you've been able to read them in advance. We don't need a meeting to read an assessment. I can't stand those IEPs where the school psychologist wants to read their entire, why? We all can read. Now, granted, if there is a language deficit 
or I mean, a language barrier and we have to translate things, that's a little bit different. But when we deal with like a parent can read it in advance, if they can read it in advance, we should be giving it in advance. And this is how I approach it. Like when I'm going to an IEP meeting with an assessment or even any documents we're going to review, I say in my like response to the IEP invitation, I say, you know, we are requesting these documents, any documents to be reviewed, assessments, draft goals, progress reports, anything, data collected in advance so that parents can, one, review them, two, come prepared to have a meaningful discussion, and then we can, as a team, have a meaningful discussion about the IEP development. Because otherwise, we're going to be just talking, we're going to be in that first stage, and we're not going to have enough time. But I also think it's important, too, that it's not just okay, you had an opportunity to read this. Do you have any questions? It's like, let's have a discussion. That's what the IEP meeting is supposed to be about. It's supposed to be everybody having the same information and us having a conversation. I think that gets lost sometimes, especially when we do make those requests for the documentation beforehand. And, you know, there are some people with the thought process of, you know, I asked for it before. And if you didn't give it to me, I'm going to the IEP meeting and I'm canceling that IEP meeting. And that's hard because there was a lot of time and scheduling to get all those people in at that meeting. So that's an aggressive move that, you know, some parents just don't want to do and, and that's okay. But I think that we'd be remiss if we had just said, oh, okay, yeah, we had the opportunity. Because sometimes if it's the day before, yes, technically you're sending it to me at 630, but I have kids, I have to feed them. I I won't have time to like read it before the 8 a.m. IEP. So it's nice to be able to say, you know, let's summarize, let's hit the major points, especially if this is, you know, the third or fourth triennial, right? Your kid's older and nothing is really changing in terms of IQ. Same team for a while. Right, exactly. And I think that that is probably, if I could talk to, and some of the teams that do this, I think that they understand that it is a conversation right. and that if everybody has is starting from the same page now you know why are some reasons they don't want to give it to you beforehand maybe they're making a change in the eligibility category or they're proposing that or you know they feel like they have to have a conversation beforehand before you know because sometimes you know you read things and if you don't understand it and it's not being explained to you because I think that's different I think for the Spanish speakers that's what I run into you can have a translation of that but if you don't actually comprehend hand behind and I think that's for their English speaking parents too you can read that report but if you don't understand it yeah well I was in an IEP once it was a triennial and I had done that language where I was like look the reason I'm asking for this in advance is because I and in this case and I try this as much as I can with my clients as we get the assessment we both read it and then we talk about before the meeting right so I know whatever questions that they might ask I've told several IEP teams like I'm not just asking just to ask. This is the reason I'm asking. Because then we can have a discussion. We can come up with solutions, right? The assessment is giving us a problem. There's a deficit in this area. You're going to propose your goals. And then you say, do you have any goals to propose? Well, how was parents supposed to even think about proposed goals if they haven't even given this information until now? So I've told several teams this. I'm like, look, this is the reason why I'm asking for this. I'm not just doing it just to be an asshole. Like, honestly. So... And in this case, and I've had this happen several times, but in this one particular case, we had a really good discussion and we were able to talk about specific parts and we got through the entire triennial assessment and the entire IP development in two hours. And it was great. And the whole team was like, this is amazing. And like, thank you so much for such a collaborative meeting. And then I go, yeah, that's why we asked for this. And the program specialist looked at me honestly and was like, yes, I totally get the idea behind it. She's like, but I can't tell you how many times I've had a parent that asks for that. And they get to the meeting and they say, oh, I didn't get a chance to read it. 
So in their minds, they're like, if we have an extra four days to hone the assessment, we'd rather have that. But, you know, you can also, that's why you send it as a draft form. So if you're a program specialist and you're a school psychologist and, you know, you've got a parent that's asking for it and it's not 100% ready. Like I get the hesitation because you don't want people jumping to conclusions by reading it. But at the end of the day, this is a team discussion. Nothing should be, the ball shouldn't be hidden. And just because one parent didn't do it, then it doesn't mean they shouldn't. Like because things come up and I think that they need to have a little bit more grace when it comes to these parents because they could have wholeheartedly thought, you know, I want to be able to read this and quite frankly maybe dad can't make it to the IEP meeting but at least he still has it and then maybe he could read it and you know because what ends up happening too is like even if we come with our own goals they're like oh well we need to take data on that right because we have to have good baselines because they're not seeing it so I think what we're trying to do is try to get through as much as we can because if we can prevent having a follow-up IEP that might be 30 days from the date of that original one because not all of them can happen within the next week or two well And that's where, like, if the parent gets it five days in advance, and not all parents are going to be able to do this, of course, but, like, let's say they read it, and I have many clients that do it, and I have many parents I've talked to that do this, read it right away, and they're like, oh, what about this, what about this, what about this, because they've been given the proposed goals, and they can go through, and they can say, well, here's three other ones. They give it back the next day. There's still three days that data can be taken. Right. I mean, I'd, I'd want data collected yeah, at different but, times. And I like because then that kind of goes into I, well, but at I'd least like that starts it. the conversation rather yeah. than, well, we need another two weeks that could start it. Because like if you have two days where you take data right before the IEP, like you at least can be like, I see what you're saying. Let's take more data versus I get a lot. We don't see that. Right. You know, and the answer of we don't see that without data behind it is useless. Right. And I right. hate that answer. It's all about the fidelity of the data. And I mean, if you're at least having the team be open minded and say, OK, we can talk more about this and then them come with their own ideas. What they could actually also do is look back at data they already have mm-hmm. and kind of look at it again from a different perspective and, and use that. And that's great. But if you know we came and they're like, oh, we did data for the last three days. We haven't seen it. I'd be like, well, you're taking more data because like that's just too quickly. But I think, you know, if you're taking it from the perspective of, you know, you guys do this every day for many different students. I'm not an expert in, you know, dyslexia or in autism. As a parent, I just know my kid. So if I'm able to kind of read through this stuff and if I don't have, you know, big, big questions, you know, we can do a summary of things. Because, you know what, if I was a parent and I read it and I still wanted them to read it and we're having three IEP meetings, then that's what you need because different parents have different learning rates as well as their students. It all comes down to making sure the parent understands what is being discussed, and that everyone's on the same page. So from that perspective, we do have case law that requires that parent have informed consent before they sign something. So if a parent is given an assessment and they're not able to digest it and then asked to sign something, that's not informed consent. Well, so often they're like, do you have any questions? And it's just like, even if you gave it to me two days before, sometimes, you know, they have to go back. Maybe they have to have a conversation with their partner and say, you know, this person wasn't here, you know, because there is always pressure to sign the IEP. And we've said it several times, you know, a parent does not have to sign the IEP in that moment. Obviously, if there's new services or things like that, yes, they will not get started until you sign that IEP. 
MVP. But I think explaining that second half is what oftentimes a lot of the administrators and maybe they don't want parents, you know, to just sit on it. And I completely understand that. But I think the more information that a parent knows, you know, sometimes when we kind of show them the light, they go, oh, I didn't know that. Like, oh, okay, that makes sense. And going along the lines of asking for documents ahead of time, you're also allowed to ask for documents during the meeting. If they're going through a progress report and they didn't hand you one to look through, ask for it. And I know we've talked about this before, but like I get pushed back on that a lot. And I'm like, not everyone can just listen. You know, another way that your meaningful participation can be impeded is through delays, delays in assessment, delays in IEP, even the idea that we have to have four IEPs to finish an annual and it's over the course of three months that delays impeding your ability to participate because how many times you sitting in a meeting and you're like talking about something that's more complex. You're trying to figure out a way to address a certain issue and it's a conversation, but then the time runs out and you have to leave. You go to the next meeting and no one remembers their train of thought. So that impedes the parent to be able to be part of that conversation because the notes aren't, you know, directly correlating to everything that's, you know, being discussed. And so, you know, that can sometimes or even just delay in providing services that's impeding participation. Another way is, you know, you look at a parent is bringing forth information to the team. I'm seeing this behavior at home or um, a classic example is handwriting. A parent is saying everything they're doing at home, they really need help with their handwriting. And the school team says, oh, well, here's some work samples. And the work samples they were given was done by the OT in a one-on-one setting. And it looks okay, right? Not perfect, but it looks okay. And we go, well, you know, that's something that is a classic example of a parent bringing forth, or even this happens with like behaviors too at home. If a parent brings information to the IEP team, the IEP teams have an obligation to look into it. Even if it's just collecting baseline data at school and giving that data to the parents, if the data truly reflects that there's not an issue at school, then that's one thing. But more often than not, we get teams that have pushback to say, well, we don't see it, so we're not creating a goal. And that's where even for parents, it's sometimes we want to tell them to take a step back of like, look, you're seeing something at home. The school is saying on the surface level, from their recollection, they're not seeing it. Let's take data. Rather than saying there needs to be a goal and a refusal, there will not be a goal. There needs to be that data collection first because that's the only way. So many times parents will ask, well, I don't really believe this goal has been met or I believe this goal has been met. Right. I think they're ready for this other goal. And how many times have I seen a team say, you know, the opposite? But there's never provided any data to corroborate that. That's important. If you as an IEP team are not providing a parent with data to support progress, then that progress was not monitored. And therefore, you can't justify the goal was, that was made or even baselines that are appropriate. Like that's impeding parent participation because there's information that parent is not aware of that you should be making parent aware of. I'm not saying that the parents are entitled to see every single piece of paper that the teacher has on your child, but the majority of it, especially if you're taking data, they have a right to see that because they have a right to be part of the team and you can't have a discussion without all the information. Yeah. And I think the better teams are those that, and this can't happen all the time, but the teachers that are really communicative with the parents, because we're just going to the IEP teams to kind of tweak some things and just to see how the child has progressed, you know, on those goals. And if parent already knows, oh, okay, you know, we needed a little bit more work or they come prepared, like, look, we were a bit ambitious with this goal. They were almost on target, but here's how we're changing the goal and providing more services or changing the goal because we see the real 
tenants of it met, but it's not like, you know, it's 75% instead of 8%. And I think those teams, you know, that collaboration and, you know, we are attorneys. We're not your attorneys. We haven't said that in a long time. We're, we're lawyers. We're not your lawyers. But hopefully these tips kind of, and just obviously from our perspective, what it means for a parent to be, to have, be an equal participant in the IEP. I think it's important to note, you know, they say equal because it feels very unequal you know well when you get the feeling like we were alluding to earlier that something's been predetermined something's been determined ahead of the meeting that's impeding parent participation you get a draft document that already says that no discussion occurs that's classic predetermination and then on the other big token is you ask for something you make a request for data you make a request for a goal you make a request for a service and assessment district is required to provide you with a prior written notice by not providing you a prior written notice on something is impeding your parental participation. Of course, that's something we've talked about in the and past. Sometimes that might be their formal response. So they may not have a response per se in that moment for whatever reason. And so then that's where, you know, within 10 days that they provide you what's called a prior written notice. Usually we see that for assessments. But oftentimes when you ask for an assessment in an IEP, they'll give you the assessment plan that day. Like we're just talking about those fringe kind of districts that don't do it that do it in a certain way that that seems adversarial so of course that's where we come from yeah (laughs) at the end of the day like we could go on for probably 10 hours talking about different instances of impeding meaningful participation but the root of it is if you as a parent do not feel like you're able to participate because of one way or another it's something that needs to be changed you have rights as a member of the team you have a right to feel like you are having meaningful participation and usually that comes to information That's the biggest component is making sure that everyone's on the same page and you have information. So don't ever feel afraid to ask for that information. And I know that for schools, it's often people are often hesitant to give a lot of information to parents because of the fact that I know schools always say, well, we don't want them to say that we predetermined or we don't want them to jump to conclusions or, you know, it's like if I give a mouse a cookie, right? They think if I give them this, they're going to ask for more. But at the end of the day, a school, your obligation is to the child and the parent. You have to provide them information. You cannot keep them in the dark. Because when we talk all the time about how one of the biggest problems in IEPs is miscommunication, it happens when people don't have information, when you don't give information to each other. Same goes with parents. Parents, if there's something happening at home, you need to provide information to the school. They can't read your mind literally either. happens in our office all the time. Yeah. You have a bit of information that like Sarah doesn't have, and then it's just like, wait, what? I didn't know that. Like It, it literally happens everywhere. And I think when you're dealing with children and you're dealing as an administrator with other people's children, it gets sensitive. Right. And there's a lot of horror stories out there. And so I think that that, you know, parents talk and hopefully that shed a little bit of light. We'd love to kind of hear your experiences, obviously, as a parent, but from the administrator perspective too, shoot us a direct message in our Facebook group or email us because we're going to have a lot of guests on the next couple of weeks. And we have a lot of different people with a lot of different backgrounds and how they're helping parents kind of maneuver the maze of special education. And we're excited. If you are an administrator, program specialist, teacher, and you'd like to be on the pod to talk about, maybe you have a method to help facilitate collaborative IEPs. We'd love, love, love to have you on because we encounter, I know that we do talk a lot about violations, but we do also encounter a lot of teams, a lot of teachers, a lot of program specialists that Mm -hmm. do it right and that come up with unique ways of addressing some of these issues. So honestly, like if you're out there, please let us know. We'd love to have you on. All right. We will talk talk to you next week. Later. Bye. Bye.